to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to be at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep your hand raised really high, and one of the ushers will come down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. Again, Acts chapter 1, as you turn there, uh, um, just, it's always hard for, like I said, it's just hard to say goodbye. Um, I'm the worst at those things. I, I know oftentimes people think like when kids go away to college, God willingly, they leave the house. Um, like it's usually the mothers stereotypically that are crying. When my kids, God willingly, leave the house, I will be a blubbering mess. I understand that. And at the same time, I know that those would be direct answers of prayers too. And I've been praying for that day. So <clears throat> anyways, and you just wit- witnessed something that probably has only happened like twice. Jason Raber has probably cried the day he was born and then the day that Jim- Benjamin is leaving. So that was pretty, that was pretty impressive. That was, and he spoke in front of people. It was an amazing day today, guys. <laughs> It's, amazing. it's an amazing, it's an amazing day. It might be snowing outside. So here's what we're going to, we're going to look here. We've been, last week, Will started the book of Acts, and we're going to be in the book of Acts for several months looking at the mission of God through his people. Primarily, here, the mission of God through his people, and that's what we're going to be looking at. But before we do that, since it's MLK Jr. weekend, we are going to start with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. So here's a quote that he has, I think, that sets the temperature of where we're going in this series. It says, I believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. To do the will of God, come what may. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. So we have this phrase here that we, that we like guide our whole church life around. And that phrase is, we believe that all of life is, you've heard of it. There's shirts. We say it every week. And it's not just a saying that we can get you guys to repeat back. We believe that God himself, Christ, that there's not one square inch of the entire universe of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not look at and scream out, mine. It means cultures and people and places. Things that originally God said that was good, that has been tainted by sin. Our God says, this is mine, and he has intentions on redeeming it on getting rid of the impurities that are in this world and in our hearts and bringing about cleansing and renewal. And we believe this to be sovereignly true of Christ, that every single thing comes under his lordship. And therefore, we began to participate with what that means. And what does it look like for us to be disciples in response to that truth? So when I was a young Christian, barely a new Christian, had just graduated college, um, I was uh, working at a high school, teaching at a high school in the West Valley. I was 22 years old. Way too young to be trying to shape students' lives. I was barely reading myself. Um, the church that I was attending at the time put out these flyers that said there's going to be a 20-somethings uh, conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and that 20,000 like, college-slash-post-college Christians are going to be at this conference. And it was only going to be about 170 bucks or something like that. Oh, that's amazing. Now, the reason why it was going to be 170 bucks is because we took a bus from Peoria, Arizona to Nashville, Tennessee, right? We met up with all these other people, right? We got to Nashville. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go on this. One, because it sounds really godly. Two, let's do the math. 20,000 people, 18 to 23. My assumption was at least 10,000 were going to be girls. I got a chance, right? And so, so I went. Truth be told, right? And so I get, the, yeah, by the way, the numbers didn't work out in my favor. <laughs> Uh, but it worked out, though, you know what I'm saying? I'm married, who stays is good. So <laughs> at this conference, um, I'm exposed for the first time to 
people to opening up the Bible and teaching it in a way that I heard God. That I mean, I heard God. And not only that, we're singing all these songs that I'd never heard of at this moment, and there were two songs that really stuck with me and still are like my guiding principles of how we live out mission. Um, one of the songs was this song called Madly, and I think it's by the Passion Band. They had a band, they were called Passion, they were pretty passionate, kind of worked out, right? And, and the lyrics of the chorus was, let what we do in here fill the streets out there. Let what we do in here fill the streets out there. And I'm believing the gospel. I am, I'm completely thanking Jesus for all that he's done in my life. And I'm going, let what we do in here fill the streets out there. I thought about that and I journaled about that all the way back from Nashville to Peoria and thought about that to years to come. What does that mean? Because it can't mean literally let what we do in this arena with 20,000 of us out on the streets because I don't think the non-Christ-following world wants us to walk out raising our hands, talking about Jesus and singing and like praising the Lord. They'd be like, no, that's not what we want you to do today, right? Like when you go to work tomorrow, they're not going to want you to walk in praising the Lord. They're like, first, you're late. Um, second, like here's some things that we need you to do. So what does it look like? Like, what is that really communicating? How do we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ? The other song was from Lecrae, who's a rapper, which is by, you know, a gift from God. And in, in this, he says, he says this lyrics, and you've heard me say this before, and this song sent me. He says, after 1,000 years in the west end of churches. Now, when he says the west end of churches, he's talking about uh, Europe, North America, you know, Canada, the whole deal. Now, I say that not to be condescending. I remember being in high school and doing like world history and they kept talking about the West and the East. I thought they were talking about like, you know, the West, you know, like the NFC, AFC West football and then like, you know, over there in the East Coast, right? Sports related. And so not trying to be condescending, I was, didn't know and so just in case you didn't know, that's what they mean. Okay, Western culture. In the West and the culture, he says churches are getting bigger daily but without understanding worship. I mean, they're growing, people are showing up, there's not enough parking spots. Kids are being turned away in children's ministry. Like, it's happening, right? Getting bigger daily without understanding worship. He goes, some are regenerated, which is the biblical word of saying that they're saved. And he goes, but, a, but, a, but really are they saved? He goes, you'd be surprised because you walk outside and the block ain't changed. And what he's saying is, if there are considerable amount of followers of Jesus, people who say they believe in Jesus, and they take seriously the scriptures as the authority of God, that when they live it out, that means the communities of which these communities are a part of, they should be some, there should be some change. Like there should be some sort of noticeable change because of our proclamation and our demonstration. So if we're letting what we do in here fill the streets out there, then what does that look like? So shortly after that, um, I got back, I was still teaching, I started serving at this inner city ministry because I felt while I was in Nashville, I sensed the call of God to do exactly what I'm doing now. I wanted to share the gospel with people. Like, I want to just tell anybody about Jesus. Like, if you had a heartbeat and you were redeemable, which to me, everybody, I was going to share with you. I wanted to, you were going to hear Jesus. If you were on a plane with me, there was no doubt, hey, this plane might go down. If it goes down, let me just tell you about this Lord Jesus, you know man, you know, just, you need to know. And they were like, I'm just putting on my seatbelt. I'm like, seatbelt, man, you need a savior, not a, you know, just like, I, like it was, it was a little much. Trust me, it was a little much. It was a little much, but that's where I was. I'm going to be this evangelist. And then from there, I started serving in the inner city ministry. And when I started serving in the inner city ministry, it broke my heart. I, I, it broke my heart watching um, a lot of these kids and the situations that they were in. I really did see myself in them. And my, at the time, my girlfriend, and then we, we got married, didn't meet her in Nashville, met her here, whole other story. And we start serving in this ministry. And I'm like, well, I want to preach the gospel, but I also want to take care of the things here. Like, people need food. Like, people need clothing. People need, like, 
like normal life training, like things that we think are quote-unquote common sense ain't that common or available for everybody. And like, we're just thinking about that. It was a quick, so, so justice, ministry to the poor. And then after that, I got introduced to like the beauty of art and how important art was. It was actually through doing urban ministry that one of the urban missiologists, which is a big word for people who love people in, the, um, in poverty and share the gospel with them, but he said the poor, every poor community and every church that serves the poor needs to have an art ministry because the poor need beauty as much as they need food. And I'm like, there's cultural renewal, like art, bam, baller from the Lord. This is great. Forget about justice. Forget about it's art. And then it's like, no, 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 vocation. And then I got into this vocation. Like, you know what? Most people who are called by God will spend the most of your time at your vocation. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're, you're an engineer, whether you're a CEO, whatever it is, whether you're serving coffee, whatever, like, you're going to spend most of your time there, and you need to see that that job has intrinsic value to bear the image and character of God. And not just if you start a Bible study, and not just if you show up on time, but it has intrinsic value to express who God is, and that's massively important. And they're like, which is it? Is it evangelism? Is it justice ministry to the poor? Is it cultural renewal? Is it vocational discipleship? Like, which one is it? Here's the thing. It's all of them. It's all of them. That when we begin to ultimately be witnesses or bear witness to who God is, there's not one space, again, of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not say, mine. And if he is Lord and Savior, then our whole life comes under full submission to him to let what we do in here, worship God, spill into every area of life that we truly can say all of life is all for Jesus. Amen? The book of Acts gives us how the church did this and how the church began to do this. And the book of Acts doesn't just end and say, now you go do it. It has an invitation to continue. That when it comes to the mission of God, ultimately, if, if the book of Acts, if the mission of God and God restoring his kingdom is a hundred-yard dash, the book of Acts gives us about the first five yards. It starts us off in the right direction. And it ends in chapter 28, and it's almost like, is that, is that it? No, it's not it. Because God is still actively working through his son, by his spirit, to men and women across the world who will respond to Jesus Christ in such a way that they may bear witness to him. And as we see throughout the book of Acts, we begin, to see, we begin to see and continue to see how God not only worked through his church, how God is still sovereignly working through his church today and now. And so I think the most important verses for us to be able to get the trajectory of Acts is 1 through 11. And so we're going to through 1 through 26 today, but the bulk of our time will be through 1 through 11 because it sets the trajectory of what we're doing. So last week, Will told you who wrote this book. It was Luke, who was a doctor or a physician. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts, which is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. From now and further, we will no longer refer to him as Dr. Luke. He's going to be Uncle Luke. And so Uncle Luke wrote this letter. Here's what he says, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That was the Gospel of Luke. He goes, O Theopolis. We don't know who Theopolis is, but it's one of the homies, right? And he says, this is what I did. I started this in the first book. But then verse 2, until the day in which Jesus was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after the sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so here are his disciples. Jesus has been resurrected. He had, they've seen Jesus. There's proofs that he showed. So it wasn't just believe just to believe, blind faith. No, he actually gives some empirical evidence like, I am the risen Savior. I mean, there's a count that we see where Thomas is like, I know everybody else believes Jesus, but I'm having a hard time. Can I just, I mean, you got that hole in your hand. Can I, can I do that? And Jesus is like, go ahead and do it, right? And he lets them do it. There's proofs. He goes, I'm here. He's with them. There's, there's, there's moments where he's eating with them. There's like this fish fry going on, and he's, and he's having a good time with them. But something happens in these 40 days. One, I think it's significant that it's 40 days because that has been consistent in the pattern of the way God prepared his people. Um, in, in the wilderness, he prepared him in 40 years to be able to come into the promised land. That Jesus himself even sees him, um, he's tempted in the 40 days or he's fasting and so forth. And now he's preparing them before he ascends to be up into the, to the, to the, to the heavens, to be sit at the right hand of the Father, which is known as the exaltation or the ascension. And so there's 40 days that they're with him, and we have to do this in order to understand Luke. we got to put ourselves in our Hebrew shoes. There was such a thing, right? They're air Jesus shoes. So we put ourselves there to be able to understand the context of what's happening, of why ultimately they get to the question they get to. Um, let, do me a favor. Jump to verse 6 real quick. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Like that is a huge question. We can't just, just jump into this because we know the rest of the story the way it goes. We have to understand, okay, what is Luke doing? Not just what is Luke saying, like what is, what is he trying to do? When they asked that question, that would have been an obvious question to say, now, here's why. Three observations of this first five verses. The first thing is Jesus is risen. Because the resurrection had happened, that meant something. Most people, as Jewish people, believed in some form of resurrection. All different groups, whether it's the Essenes, whether it was the Zealots, whether it was the Pharisees, uh, the common people, they believed in a resurrection. Only one group didn't, and they were the Sadducees. But everybody believed that there was going to be some form of resurrection. Now, they differed on how and um, when the resurrection would happen, they had no idea that it was going to be Jesus putting on flesh, dying for their sins, and three days being raised from the dead. And now they find themselves going, the resurrection has happened, and it's happened in the Messiah. He's the resurrection. Even though Jesus earlier had said, I'm the resurrection, now they go, yes, it's him. You know what that meant for them? It's in time. It's going to happen now. Heaven and earth will unite. Everything that we've heard from the prophets will happen now. That was one. The next thing that happens is he began to teach them about the kingdom, it says. That he taught them about the kingdom of God, the way life would be. That means that the kingdom of God had broken in. And the way in which we will live under the sovereign reign of God. That they were waiting for this kingdom. That that was a part of their language. They knew about kingdom theology or kingdom language. And he said, okay, now, Jesus, you're king. Now let's reign. Like, you're going to reign. Let's go. That meant in time. And then the third observation was the pouring out of the Spirit. So here's what, here's what they say here. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. He had said this earlier in Luke, that the Father will send the Spirit. And he says this, Which the Father said to you, You heard me, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He said, John baptized from water. And if you're not familiar with that story, when Jesus came in his ministry, John the baptizer was baptizing, and he baptized Jesus, and he baptized many people. And that baptism was not ultimately that their sins were washed away. It was the preparation to say that they were preparing for God to do an act or a work in their life. 
And he said, in the same way that you went underneath the water, that you were immersed into the water, there's coming a day where you will be immersed into the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. That for the first time in history, the Spirit was going to do something unique that the Spirit had not done yet. I mean, the Spirit had not indwelled permanently in the people of God. Yes, there were moments where the Spirit would speak through prophets. Yes, there were moments where the Spirit would hover around, like when Jesus was baptized. The Spirit was hovering around creation. The Spirit was at work, but the Spirit was not permanently indwelling in the people of God. Like, that was something that was going to happen. And again, in the understanding of end times as a normal Jewish person, you would have said the risen Lord, resurrection. Um, you would have said the teaching of the kingdom and the pouring out of the Spirit. That right there means the end time is to happen now. So if you were a Jewish person and you heard those things, you're like, oh, this is it. Yes. After all these years, after all these years, they knew their story. They knew their suffering. Centuries and centuries and centuries. And now they're saying, now our Messiah is here, and he's going to bring the kingdom. Like, right now, they fully expected only to have, like, in some ways of a letdown. So when I was a senior in high school, finished my last year of high school, we had a banquet, like a football banquet, where they give out all the awards and whatnot. And I arrogantly thought I was going to take them all. And there was one particular moment where my coach is up there, and he goes, this last award goes to, uh, and he kind of chokes up a little bit, and he's like, this guy's like a son to me. And I pick him up for practice, you know, and take him to school. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's, here we go. And, uh, and I'm thinking, this is all me. And the way he's describing him, like, yeah, this is me. And he goes, all right, without further ado, why don't you guys uh, put your hands together. And I stand up. And I stand up because I'm like, it's a long walk. Let me go ahead and get that, you know, get that strut on, you know. I get up, and he's like, this word goes to Devin Robinson. Okay, just in case you don't know, I'm Ricardo, right? And so Devin, and I'm already, like, stood up from the table, and I'm standing up, like, Devin Robinson. I'm like, guys, get up for Devin. What you guys waiting on? This, right? So embarrassing. I was like, man, that's not what I expected, right, at all. That's how the disciples feel in this moment. They say to Jesus now, after these strings of the risen Savior, of the teaching of the kingdom, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then they ask the question, Lord, this is verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. They're like, wait a minute, we thought it was going to be now. And he's like, no, nah, sit down, the word's not going to you, <laughs> right? There's a, there's a sense where they were wanting a one-time deal. And then Jesus gives them this four-fold answer. And again, this is important for us to understand the trajectory of Acts. And the four-fold answer starts first is that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. And that's a phrase that you've heard us say before. Um, already and not yet. It was a phrase that was first introduced to the church years ago from a theologian from Princeton, and then it was reintroduced again in, in, in 1950 by a, a theologian named George Ladd, and it was to communicate the concept that the kingdom of God is already here. That means when Jesus came into this world and he said the kingdom of God is at hand, what he meant was the kingdom of God was at hand, right? Here, that the spirit was breaking in. And then he showed what the kingdom of God was like. That he said those the people who did not have sight, that he gave them sight. Those who could not hear, that he gave them the ability to hear. That those who were demonic, demonically possessed, he cleared them and cleansed them. To those whose heart were entangled, all of us, with sin, that he brought about redemption through his blood. That he's saying that the kingdom has broken in, yet it's not yet fully. 
Like it's already here. The spirit and presence of, and power of Christ is here, but not yet fully. There's still brokenness and there's still decay and there's still pain and there's still sin. And we live in the tension of what is called the old age and the age that is to come. And we live in the overlap of that. And so here's a visual to get just a picture of what that looks like. The power of sin, the old age to the left, the power of sin, death, evil, and Satan. And then you see the cross, and then you see that arrow that's diagonally glowing up. That's the ascension. By the way, that's about to happen next verse. And then you have the new, the new age. And we live in the overlap of living in the tension of that, the already and the not yet. And we see this worked out throughout the rest um, of, of the Bible. And so the first thing in the unfolding answer, when they said, will you now restore heaven and earth and all of Israel? And he says, ah, the kingdom of God is already and then not yet. The second thing that he talks about is the foretaste. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, foretaste is what it sounds like. It's something that you just get a little taste of to see if you want the rest of the meal, right? Like you, you taste a little something. And you go, man, I want to, wow, I want more of this. You guys ever had that experience before? Some of you guys have. Some of you guys like, no, whatever. So I, my family and I, like, we went to Tennessee uh, for, we were gone. That we, we visited half the time with my family and half the time with Holly's family. I'm not going to tell you which family was better to be with. My family was clearly the best. So we're, we're no, it's up, to, it's, up, it's up to debate. And so we're with my with my family, and there was a moment where they're, they're making the sweet potato pies. And I, I, I think sweet potato pies are a gift from Jesus Christ, right? And so, so I taste a spoonful of it, like a little bit, like just give me a little bit, just enough. And I'm telling you, when you taste it, it's worshipful. Thank the Lord from whom all blessings flow, right? So you just taste a little bit. And I didn't eat the whole pie. That came later. Um, just a little bit to go, yes, like I want that. Like it's enough to go, yes. So Jesus says this, the kingdom of God is already not yet. And then he says, you're going to get the pouring out of the Spirit, the promise of God, the Holy Spirit. That is a foretaste. A foretaste is just enough to say, you know what, I'm a part of this, I want this, I desire this. The foretaste is to know that your sins are forgiven in Christ and that you're being empowered to do exactly what God has called you to do. A foretaste is that little bit of umph that we feel when we gather together and we worship. And we worship even in song. When we sing songs like, I exalt thee, like we would not say that with the belief unless the Spirit of God has given us a foretaste of what it will be like one day to fully exalt God without the presence and power of sin in our life. That there truly is a foretaste to go, I love Jesus. Like, he is my Lord. He is my Savior. My whole life exists for him. My actions are not always consistent with my beliefs, but that's why I repent in God's name through grace. But Jesus is it. Foretaste. And that stuff means something. Like, it means something. Like, being a Christian means that we've been given the Spirit to see and know and follow Jesus Christ, who has introduced us to the love of his Father, and that now we participate in what it is that he has for us, our whole life, given to him. Jesus says, it's not now that I'm going to restore it, but the Father's fixed it. It's going to happen. Like, it's going to happen. But until then, it's already and not yet. You've been given a foretaste to experience the life of the Spirit, and not just the life of the Spirit, but it says the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that word pyra, the, um, power, um, uh, dunamis, right, which comes from the word dynamite. Like, we didn't even really have that word in our English language until some guy named Alfred Nobel, might have heard of him, and he designed something that was more powerful than anything else, and he went to his Greek scholar friend and said, what do you call something that's more powerful than anything else? And he called it dynamite. 
And that's the same word here. But it's the active power of God, which is the foretaste that lives in every single man, woman, or child that trusts in Jesus. We are not without. So therefore, we don't need to have the powers of this world when we have the most powerful thing in the world, and that is Christ and given us his Holy Spirit. So he says, already not yet. And you're going to have the foretaste. And, and then the next thing that he gives us is an identity. He says, once you receive the Spirit, verse 8, and it's come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He goes, you will be my witness. You will be. Now, oftentimes, the way it's taught is that Jesus is commanding us to be witnesses. And here's the deal, and Will touched on this last week. He's not commanding us to be witnesses. In fact, this is not even a command. Um, in the Bible, there are things called imperatives and there are things called indicatives. Imperatives are things that we're supposed to do. You should do this, you should do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't wear that, like, like, like that, right? Imperatives. Indicatives are things that are just are, things that God has done, right? So what he's saying is this is not imperative, this is actually an indicative. He's not saying if you try hard, you will become a witness. If you do this, you'll be a witness. He goes, no, God is doing something. And he's doing something that is changing your status in such a way that you are. It's an identity. It's a part of who you are as a follower of Christ. So eight years ago, when my wife gave birth to our oldest son, I, by fact of her giving birth, I became a father, right? I became a father. Now, I can't change that. Forever, part of my identity is I'm a father. It just depends if I want to be a good one or a bad one. When he says you will receive the Spirit, and if you are in this room and you are a follower of Christ and you receive the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you are a witness. And can I get a witness, right? <laughs> you are a witness. And because you're a witness, either you're going to be a good one or you're going to be a bad one. And don't just receive that individually. We are witnesses. We are the people of God. And as redemption, are we good witnesses or are we bad witnesses? We can't change that because God has already given us the Holy Spirit. So back again, Jesus, is, now are you going to restore it? Like now can we just, can we just quote unquote go to heaven? Jesus is like, no, I'm going to bring heaven here. But it's already here, but then it's not yet fully. The Father is going to take care of it. And then you yourself, you, you're going to have the foretaste of the Spirit, and then you need to be witnesses in everything that you do, say, and think. That witnessing is not only proclaiming the name of Jesus, but it is nothing less than that. We need to tell people about the hope of Christ. Like, like that Jesus Christ is good news. Somebody told us at some moment, whether it was a grandma, whether it was a parent, whether it was a pastor, whether it was a dude on the street, whether it was a dude hanging out the MU yelling at people, at some point, somebody told you about the life of Christ and the Spirit of God initiated something in your life to say, I want to follow that. We have to give people that opportunity. Like, we have to. We have to proclaim it and we have to demonstrate it. It cannot be, I'm going to do the work, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to say a lot of stuff, but I'm not going to do anything. No, 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 no. Like, one of my least favorite quotes is, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It sounds really good, but here's the thing. You can't preach the gospel without using words, right? And then Jim Mullins corrected me and goes, unless you use sign language and stuff, unless there's sign language, right? So I want to make sure we add that as well. And however you do that, I don't know how to do it, somebody can teach me, and what, darn it, we'll be preaching the gospel, right? So 
We have to preach the gospel, but we also have to do love and mercy and justice. They are two sides, two wings of the same plane to be a witness. And this is verbal proclamation in the way that we live our life. This is what we do in our recreation, in our spare time, in the time that we give to work. This is what we do in worship. It's like we never stop being a witness. Like you can't say, man, I've been witnessing for a while. I'm going to take a vacation for a couple weeks and then get back to whistling. Well, whistling. You don't whistle. You're witnesses, guys. Don't be confusing that with whistling, right? And even when you whistle while you work, you witness, right? And so there's, we, we have to constantly be witnesses. <laughs> not in the notes, but it worked. So, already and not yet. I'm going to restore it, but already not yet. And ultimately, you're going to have the foretaste of the power of the Spirit. And you're going to be witnesses. And then the last thing we see about this answer is, they thought it was going to be only about Israel and only in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, no, it's not going to be that way. And Christianity is the only religion, major religion that doesn't have a center geographically. Um, this past week, we had a group of people go and, and tour the mosque here in Tempe and meet with the imam there, which is like a Muslim pastor, and to hear about their faith and so forth. And not because we were trying to become Muslims or whatnot. We were just getting to know who they were. And one of the things you learn is that when they pray, they pray towards Mecca. Because that is the center. Like they, they believe that that's their place. Christianity, we may call Jerusalem the Holy Land, and that's okay, but it's not the center. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Where? He goes, in Jerusalem, and then all of Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Meaning, it doesn't stop. Like, you, 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 you take this gospel everywhere. And, you know, Generally, the way the book of Acts is broken down, like the first seven chapters are in Jerusalem, then after that they're in Judea, then after that, for the most part, they're in Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, and they go to Rome, and after that it ends in such a way that it goes to the next place, the next place, that it eventually gets to Arizona, gets to Phoenix, gets to Tempe, gets to your neighborhood, gets to your home, gets to your heart. Like this gospel goes. And so what we see is this progress is geographically it starts, meaning all the events of the gospel. Hear me, the gospel is not a concept. It's not a concept. It's not a theory. These are events that happen within human history that God put on flesh and was birthed into this world and the man of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, that he lived a certain life, that he did miracles and teachings and so forth. He died a death, and then th as he said he would, three days later, the next event that he was raised from the dead. And then after 40 days, what we read here, he ascended into the heavens. And then on, upon his exaltation, he sends the spirit, which happens next week. By the way, you don't receive the spirit until next week, so come back. He, he sends the spirit... He sends the Spirit. These events become what we call good news. Good news is not a concept. Good news are things that are happening that are reported upon. And you respond your life to it. So your life is shaped by this particular news. And we say this is good news. And when that happens, it starts in Jerusalem and it moves to all the Judea and then to Samaria. And what happens is no longer is the center Jerusalem, but the center is in the gospel. So no matter where we are as followers of Christ, we find ourselves being recentered, facing towards, or about face, repenting to Jesus Christ. Whether we're in Tempe or whether we're in Nigeria, we have our center as followers of Christ in Jesus Christ, primarily in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and him sending us the Holy Spirit that we may worship him as he promised anywhere. Any, and I would add, everywhere that we worship him. And so Jesus answers this in saying the kingdom of God is going to be restored. It's already broken in, but it's not yet fully. And then you're going to have the foretaste of the spirit to know and worship and follow Jesus. 
and that you're going to tell other people and your actions and your deeds, and people are going to come to know Jesus because of you. Ordinary people filled by the Spirit, led by God. And then it's going to go to multiple places, and for us, it's here in Tempe, it's in Gilbert, it's in Chandler, it's in Arcadia, it's in downtown Phoenix, it's in Scottsdale, wherever you people live, right? And it's wherever we work and wherever we play, and then we become witnesses ultimately to the risen Lord. Amen? So when people ask me, what is the mission of the church? Um, we as a church don't have a mission unless our mission is a part of God's mission. Hear me on this. We don't get to make up our mission. Um, you follow God. It is his mission. By the very nature of who God is, he is missional. That the Father in his love sends the Son. Sent. That's what that word means. Missio is sent. And as the Son in his love, for us, he sends the Spirit. And what we see throughout Acts, the Spirit informs and fills and then sends the church in order to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ wherever we are. We are constantly on mission. Christopher Wright says this when it comes to mission. Fundamentally, our mission, if it's biblically informed and validated, means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. Meaning it is all about what God is doing in Christ to redeem the world and how we participate as witnesses through the work and in the work of Jesus Christ. So at this moment, Jesus tells them, and he does the move that would be like the worst coaching move ever. Like, guys, we're about to go against the biggest opponent in the world. It's going to be great. And we're going to, here, here's our plan, the whole world, and um, I'm about to leave, right? Like, he says this, verse 9, it says just like this. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, who do you stand, or why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right? They're, they're thinking, oh, Jesus is here. He's resurrected. We're going to be with him. This is great. He's walking through walls and stuff. He's got holes in his hand. This is great. Forty days hanging out with Jesus. And as he says that, to the ends of the earth, they look up and there's a cloud and Jesus just kind of fades to black. Right? And as they're looking up, they hear this booming voice of two men in white robes expressing their glory. Okay, just... That'd be weird, guys. Like, Jesus is ascending up, and they're like, we didn't thought we'd seen it all. And it's like, hey, why are you looking up? And it was like, oh, because Jesus just ascended to the heavens. Like, why would I not look at that? Like, that was amazing, right? And there's this soft rebuke in the, in the question of why are you looking up? This Jesus who you believed upon, who is your Lord, who just gave you the commands, he actually wants you to start doing something. So do it. And they were told, wait here until they receive the Spirit. That right there is the trajectory of how we begin to move and how we begin to see how God moves through the church. Verses 12 through 26, um, go back and read it more and in its entirety, is the church now doing and responding to Jesus. What happens is the disciples look at each other, and there was 12, and now at this time there's 11, because Judas had betrayed the Lord. It says that Judas himself, um, he bought a field with the money that he got from betraying the Lord, and he took his life there. And the, and the apostles are saying, with the women... It's the men and women together of going, we need to find somebody else to replace him. And so they put two people up um, as nomination, and then, and then they prayed, as the church was supposed to do and ought to do and continue to do, to be fueled for mission. It's pray. And then, and then they cast lots. So it's an interesting process. 
They go, we know who two people who have the qualification to meet it, and these two people we put forth, and we pray like crazy, and then we cast lots, which is essentially like kind of like we put some names on some stones and put, you know, Matthias's name and, and another justice's name, and, and we kind of, all right, this guy got it. And it seems like there's a human element, and there's also a spiritual element in it, and then it says, okay, here's who we got as our guy. Verse 24, and they prayed as they ought to have done. They prayed and said, you, Lord, uh, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, after this, there's no more um, replacing apostles when they died. There was some adding of apostles. We'll see that the apostle Paul um, becomes an apostle and, and, and Barnabas. But what's happening here is because the mission starts first in Jerusalem and restoring Israel, 12 was a significant number. Jesus wasn't the only rabbi to gather 12. Most rabbis would gather 12 because it was significant of the fact that Israel had his 12 sons, and they were the 12 tribes of Israel. And for Israel to be restored, they would have that number of fullness or wholeness there in the 12. And so they gathered the 12 and saying, now we're here with the 12 apostles to lead the church with the men and women as we're in the upper room and we're praying and waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Hold your breath. Next week, we're going to receive the Spirit <laughs> in chapter 2. Um, here's some implications that we have. One, what we're going to see and come back to throughout the book of Acts is this community. That the way people even evangelize, you hardly ever do you see explicit commands to go evangelize. The way they lived their life was so missional that people wanted to get in on it. That this community that we, that we see that um, Roland Allen points out these three things that we'll come back to about the life of the church and the community next. One, it was an attractive community. That the way in which people lived and loved and served in each other, that they made it attractive. Um, number two here was that spontaneous evangelism by everyday church people. It wasn't like, come to my church and my pastor can tell you about the gospel. It's like, no, I'm a part of the church. I am the church. And because my everyday life just shows it in such a way, I'm going to tell you in very normal conversations. Like just normally talking about the person whom you love most in Jesus and what he's done on your behalf and behalf of the world and behalf of the people who you know, trust, and love. Number three is planting new churches. And those planted churches in the community that we find ourselves a part of, the city we find ourselves a part, on, part of, the state, the country, and even outside the country. And we're going to hear more um, about what that looks like for us. Redemption Tempe or redemption as a whole is not to just grow as many people as we can get in this room. It is to send people out on other missions to do more gospel work within the community and primarily through planting churches in our state, in our world, um, throughout the world, the country, and so forth. And we'll look at these things, but ultimately it's the spirit who makes our life attractive. We don't have to do anything weird for that to happen. And when you love somebody and you're excited about them, you talk about them in such a way that others want to be a part of it. And then you want other people to know you sinned. And you send people, and that's the nature of the church because the church in itself embodies the life of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The way in which this is fueled by us is our love for God, like our love for him. Many of us need to check ourselves, all of us. We need to look ourselves and go, are we trying to fit God into our agenda? Where can we fit him in the agenda that I have for my life, for my wife, for my kids, for their education, for their well-being? Or are we, do we find God himself, his mission, and in seeing how we can reorient our lives around his mission and his story that we become a part of it through Jesus? I'm going to close with this quote by Leslie Newbegin that I believe calls what the sacrificial love 
life looks like for us as a community. He says, when Jesus sent out his disciples on mission, he showed them his hands and his side. They will share in his mission as they share in his passion. As they follow him in challenging and unmasking the powers of evil, there is no other way to be with him. At the heart of mission is simply the desire to be with him and to give him the service of our lives. At the heart of mission is thanksgiving and praise, that our gratitude and delight is that we want to know him and to make him known. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great grace in which we've been extended through your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you are forming and have formed a community of people. You've given us two beautiful symbols in which we can remember you and which we will today, and that is bread and wine. Your life that has been given to us and your blood that has been shed for us, the invitation of the Spirit to be welcomed into the family of God, to participate in all of what you're doing. We'd ask that you would continue to equip us, to send us, to fill us, to guide us. Lord, may we be relationally, Lord, uh, together. Um, would you build relationships even within this church deeper than they've ever been? And God, would you send us, Lord, in the places and to the people that they may know your name. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.